Episode 81, Shaping Company Culture with Mike Ungaro, CEO of San Pedro Fish Market. Welcome to the story in your head. I'm Deb Dendy, and today, Ron Macklin, myself, and special guest Mike Ungaro discuss the transformation of his family-owned business. He shares how important organizational culture is in creating a cohesive, effective team and how it has contributed to his company's success. Welcome to the Story in Your Head podcast. Today, we have the honor of having our guest, Mike Angaro, who is the CEO of San Pedro Fish Market. Mike, could you give a, a short introduction of who you are? Sure. My name is Mike Angaro, as you spoke, married to Anita, or I think we're in t- year 26, <laughs> the three adult daughters that are doing quite well. And I am the, uh, I hold the role of CEO in our family business, which my grandfather started I think it's been 66 or 67 years now. We started as a small corner shop, about 200 square feet, selling seafood to the locals. And in the last at last decades, mostly I'd say in the last 12 years, we've grown to be one of the largest. I think actually what I read was we were the third highest grossing independently owned restaurant in the country. And we're continuing to grow and innovate. And we're still family owned and operated. Just focus on more on family owned. Finding new operators, and uh, we're doing really well. That's me. Ah, that's great, Mike. You know, today we wanted to talk a little bit about culture, and I'm curious, like, what does culture mean to you? Like, what does business culture mean to you? Oh, it's great. You know, as my daughters are moving into their professional lives, and I'm listening to them come home and talk about the interaction they have in their jobs. You know, I've one that loves the work has a lot of issues on occasion with people short since then it reminded me of when I'd left the family business, worked in banking, worked in insurance. And one of the memories that came back to me was an insurance company I worked with right out of college. Somebody died in their bed and somebody else went out on a stretcher and people just kind of went along like, Ooh, that's rough. And I'm like, this is not the culture I want to be in. It's not the narrative or stories of a happy life to me. And I had to sort of beg my dad, you know, I know you paid for me to go to college and have a career, but this whole cubicle thing is not working out so well for me. And I think what I've been sort of hit with recently as and reflecting on that is, you know, culture is someplace where you, it, it's, it sets the mood, the stories, all the traditions, what's accepted and not accepted in the place that you work. And with some of the th- challenges that we've had most recently this year occurred to me, like, do I need to go back into that cubicle setting and work for someone else? Like, you know, you're playing all these different scenarios in your head and the idea of that culture and not being able to affect it, like hit me. Or I'm in a place and as a CEO where I can set the culture and really help to develop it and speak what it should be and have an effect. And I think I kind of took that for granted until I was faced with the idea or the, like the possibility that I would be and have to go find another culture to work in and deal with that. Yeah, great. Thank you. So, so Mike, what, what was the culture like when you were growing up around uh, San, San Pedro fish market, what was the culture of the company at that time? Mm. I would say predominantly what I always noticed was it was just work hard, work hard, work hard, work hard. There wasn't a space to contribute. I say that like, and I've noticed that even up till now, people are scared to speak ideas. And that's the culture that I've worked to change. When I was younger, it was just like, show up, work really, really hard like a machine, 
And then maybe when your shift's over, maybe you can go home. It just depends on if we still need you or not. And I was like, you know, starting at age 12 for me. <laughs> it's like really very now in one ways, it, it, I think it's helped not just me, but a lot of the people that have worked for us, thousands and thousands of people, a lot of them, I don't keep in touch with thousands, but I've had a lot come back to me saying, you know, that made such a big difference in my life. Like the work ethic was like being in the military because some of these people did go into the military and they go to work for the police department and, and that work ethic actually helped them. But I don't know if it, if it made them satisfied or happy, it, you know, like they, they saw where it helped them in their career to be competitive and, and get the roles that they wanted. But I didn't ever hear that they were satisfied. They were thankful. I would say, I don't know if they were satisfied and that kind of stuck with me. You know, there was, there was one in particular who went into LAPD internal affairs. <laughs> like he, he left, he went to work as a salesperson and, and, and a company that we buy our alcohol from. And then he ended up in, in, uh, in law. And he's happy. He's done really well. I mean, I, as far as I could, you know, my conversations with him, but he would tell me like, if it wasn't for that culture of hard work, show up, work hard, work hard, work hard. I don't know that I would have had a narrative around where I ended up in my career. And the other thing I noticed relative to that, which I'll always remember, I left to go work as a bank teller at one point, you know, like that when I was in college, my dad's like, go do something else with your life. See what's out there. Hi. <laughs> so I went to uh, work as a bank teller and I'll remember my very, very first day we had nameplates, you know, and what, what happened is when you got in, you went to grab one of the, the, well, I forgot what they're called and you slide your name into like a placard, I guess. Right. And on the back of them was written the, the times for lunches and breaks. So if you were late, you ended up with the worst times. Like you're going to lunch at two o'clock in the afternoon and you're going to get a break at five o'clock, you know, right before we close. So, cause they had the stagger on. So the goal was to get in there, get early, get the good one. And I was training with somebody and, and they were like, well, we, it's time for our, our break. Get a 15 minute break. Oh, I don't need a break. I never had a break. I didn't even know what a lunch was. <laughs> like we just worked. Right. And. They were really like, shut up. You're going to ruin it for all of us. We got to keep our breaks and keep our lunches. And I, and I noticed at that point, I was like, wow, I guess, I guess this is how it's done everywhere else. But I was bored. Like I knew I could do more because I spent so much time laboring. You know, I had become like a machine. And I was kind of thought, like, I, I, you know, you eventually go towards, I'll take the rest <laughs> the time off. And I want to know what everyone's laughing about in the break room. So, so I think, Mike, you've talked about the, like the rigor, the discipline that comes with that, like in that space, what is some of the weaknesses of that kind of culture? Like you had strengths, what is the weakness? Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, what's happened that I've noticed now, you know, being 53 this year, I've noticed it, it doesn't get you far enough to be satisfied. So in other words, what, what I'm seeing now are younger people coming to work harder, which isn't, it actually is becoming less common, <laughs> but the, but hard work isn't enough at a certain point. You know, like you're older and you're tired. We have customers, we have employees actually that are, have worked for us that we've had to make like really difficult decisions about because they're in their fifties and sixties and they want to still work hard, but physically they really can't, you know, like they'll come to, I, we had one person that came to work and was clearly having health issues. Like you need to go to the hospital. And they refused and they kept coming back. They were having a stroke, but they didn't want to go to the hospital and be told what to do and take medication. They just figure I'll work through it. So I think that that, that like where the detriment to that is, is, is hard work just solves everything. And, you know, there's a certain facticity about how our biology works and our bodies work and they age. And if you're not respectful of that, then, it, you know, you have a bad ending. And he didn't die, but he didn't do well. And eventually we just had to say, hey, you know, 
we just can't have you work here anymore. You're, you're handling knives and power tools and bandsaws, and you're having a stroke. You can't go. It's time to retire. But he wasn't prepared to retire. And I've seen different versions of that now with these longer-term employees that have been with us. So you want to have a certain amount of loyalty, and you want to help them out. But they don't know how to accept the help, for one. There's, a, there's an idea that, well, I worked really, really, really hard, so aren't you going to just pay for my retirement? Well, that was never part of the deal. We couldn't afford to do that. That's why we set up retirement funds and things. But so it's, it's hard to watch people that you care for and respect not be prepared to transition out of, out of labor at a certain age. It's really hard. I, I, was, I was really triggered to think about, you've used the word twice now, satisfaction. You used it in terms of yourself and you used it in terms of your employees. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, why, why does that matter? Mm. Well, what I'm finding is everybody has a different story about what that means. And it's important that you know what that means for different people, because if they're not satisfied, I think that leads to, well, just a lack of happiness. You know, like we have some people that just let, tell me what to do. Oh, I did what you told me, you know, didn't I do a good job? And they're looking to produce satisfaction by us, you know, essentially patting them on the back or telling them they did a good job or believe, and really it comes down to believing in them is what I'm finding. But what I, what I, what I notice is if the story isn't very deep enough, it's very surface level. Like I just want to check off the boxes. I'm satisfied that I did that. I expect you're going to tell me that you're satisfied and we can all go on to the next day and do it again. There's some advantages to that when you're running a business, but but it's hard to grow and keep up with competition that way. The other thing I'd say, like the way I've hold satisfaction is, is, you know, there's another way to look at it. It's like, it doesn't matter what anyone says. Did they show up to work the next day? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know that that's the way I, I, I'm comfortable with because you can show up like, well, I'm satisfied you're paying me, but, but I really want to go above and beyond, which is just getting a paycheck. You know, so people feel involved. I think satisfaction can be deeper. It can be more about, I contributed and I made a difference and I was recognized and I feel like I'm valued that way. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Mike, what is one of the accomplishments in the, in the domain of culture that you have created since becoming a CEO? Mm. It was hard to see for me because as I was working or moving to introduce different ways to think and act together for our business, you know, our culture was really based in family. We're family first. You know, not everybody wants to work in a family, <laughs> but it's still one of our core values because it's really deep in us. And we find there are a lot of people that have been with us for a long time that I feel like I'm family. There's some people that we've had to let go that are offended. Like, how could you let me go? I thought we were a family. And, and so it's, it's, it's a challenging distinction, but at our core, we're, we are a family business. What I've been working on the shift there is, is to be more, think about it more as a family owned professional organization. Cause I think there's, there's the two have to sort of balance where this showed up as being wrong, like down to, to get to the point on that question, where it started to show up that I was a, a little bit successful is when we dealt with crises, like with, cause we've had two crises. We've had um, one with pandemic, which was, oh my God, what do we do? We can't, you know, we can't operate. And then we recently had to deal with leaving our buildings to make room for the uh, redevelopment of the waterfront where our legacy locations are, which has been like a 12 year back and forth. Do we have to leave? Do we not have to leave? We have to leave that. Well, when those eviction notices came down, just like when the pandemic rulings came down, what I noticed was that the core values, and I was just speaking this on a recording to the staff of leadership, family, passion, is that 
producing those as a group on our leadership team, what those core values are, defining them and then speaking them recurrently, and then putting structures in place for people to actually work and move with them. One being your method, Matt, Ron, back to the Mackle method. And also, last was another one we used, and then there's some others I've studied. Everybody sort of jumped into the boat together for the first time and rowed in the same direction. <laughs> that's the culture wow. I want. Yeah, that, that's, yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's the culture everybody wants, right? Yeah. Now, what I'm noticing now, as and it's happened last time, is as the crisis sort of fades and we think we got past it, everybody... It's funny, I, I, I thought everyone was going to... The way I held it was it appeared as people were rowing in different directions in the same boat. And I realized that there might be a little bit of that, but I think what's really happening is everybody jumped back in their own boat. Mm. And they might all be going in the same direction, but they're not helping one another row, right? And And that's like a big issue because, hey, look, I'm rowing fast. Like, yeah, you're not supposed to be competing against me. You're supposed to be helping one another. And it's like, well, stay out of my boat and just tell me I got where I needed to go and stop trying to put a hole in it. And and so it's weird because we're after the same goal. And, and what I'm noticing is that not everybody's trying to achieve it in the same way as a team. It's more like become an individual sport, but they're on the same team. That. Makes sense. Like, I, and yeah. I, I didn't yeah, yeah. that until a couple of days ago. I'm like, oh, that's what's happening. Got it. Uh, great noticing. Like, if you could uh, look out in five years, which means you're through your temporary stuff, you're now in your your places, you've got whatever you're going to do. What does your culture look like then? And you could use the magic wand method. Like, if you had a magic <laughs> wand, what would it look like? Yeah. But like, what would that look like? Describe that for us. To answer your question, if I had a, a magic wand and I could set what the culture would look like in just say five or 10 years or just say, just say five years, I would have every role in the company, every seat in the company held by somebody who has a list of accomplishments in that area that are uncommon and competitive. Like in other words, I, I would say if you're going to have, try to think of one, like operations is a big thing on the restaurant side. We're pretty good at operating the restaurant the way we operate it, but it's not necessarily in the domain of restaurants. We don't have the same standard practices and we're building that. So I would have, I would have the culture be where the people that are sitting in those seats, they're either extremely accomplished at what they do or they're open to learning and asking for teachers that can to get them there and every place in the company. Like no more row, rowing your own boat, no more rowing against the other ones. Everybody's in the same boat after the same common goal. And the idea is that where the culture isn't about restaurants anymore, it's about building the San Pedro Fish Market brand. And it's some, a brand that everybody can be proud of and feel like they contributed to. Thanks, Mike. Before we go on to, I got other questions too. I'm sure Deb does well. What, what is the San Pedro Fish Market brand? The brand. Oh, yeah. So we're, oh, that's great. I just started working with a company to help us build out our retail. And they were asking a lot about this actually yesterday. Mike Moore and I were, were working on this as a project for a long time. And Mike reminded me, Mike's, you know, for, for background, Mike's been with the company his whole life and, and his, uh, our founder is essentially like a stepdad. So for, for listeners, Mike reminded me of a, a story someone told us years ago. It was a, a business professional out of Mexico that, that we had met because our client base is predominantly Latino and the majority are from uh, Mexican background. And he goes, you know, when you live, live and grow up in Mexico, you, you can't really move up. You're either making $40 a week or you're rich. Like there's no middle class. So when, when people find a way to move to this country, move to the United States and start a new life, they can earn $40 an hour sometimes, you know, and, and, and blue labor work. 
And what San Pedro Fish Market means to those people is it's, it's an example or a demonstration of what it means to achieve the American dream. So everybody in the family who has a job, they're getting an education, they have a home to live in, they go to church on Sunday, and then whatever money is left over that didn't go into paying for that lifestyle than paying for their commitments, they come to San Pedro Fish Market and buy things they could never afford at the country they left. Lobster, king crab, 32-ounce beers. <laughs> and it's a celebration of the sacrifice they made to, to, to move to a new country. And I forgot about that narrative for a while and how powerful it was because I wasn't holding it that way. And I think what our brand is, is it's, it's about family. It's about celebration. You know, I, I held that part of it, but I forgot how deep it is in multi-generations because we're seeing you know, customers that come in and they say, you know, I used to come here with my, with my parents and now I'm here with my kids and my parents. So I want them to all have this tradition, have this experience. And, you know, I think as, as, a, as, as human beings, we grow up sharing food with the people we love. You know, you're all around the dinner table and you're sharing stories. And what we do is we, we provide a place for people to share food because our food is mostly family style and, and build memories that last and, and live on. So that's what I see the brand as being. It's a place where people can celebrate food, celebrate family, and build new memories that they carry on and stories that they can share. Uh, that's great, Mike. And I can say... I've built my own memories there <laughs> because it really is fantastic. It's something different than I've ever been to before. So thank you for that. Mm. I, ha I have another question about culture because you mentioned there were some things that you've put in place. You talked about EOS. You talked about the Macla method. Like, and I'm, I'm interested to hear what did that change? Like mm. what, what part of your culture, what, what did that influence in your culture? Yeah, that's great. There's a lot there. I want to keep it super simple. Though. I think it came down to trust was the primary thing. Mm. And it's still a big issue. Like I've noticed since we've had to deal with this moving out of the buildings thing or the last crisis, we had to let a lot of these methodologies and practices kind of pushed aside to just do what we have to do to survive. And now two, three months later, I'm seeing that the practices, the methodologies are fading away. You know, and it's a problem because you're going right back to rowing in your own boat again, sometimes rowing against each other. So what was great, what I noticed was it gave, while working Macklin with you all, uh, I think one of the biggest noticings for me was people started to feel like they could be heard, you know, like they had a voice in the company. They had a way to communicate without being afraid. I mean, they're probably still afraid, but, but they could see how it could be done more effectively. They saw how there was, like, I listened to stories about people saying, you know, this didn't just make me more effective and my leadership role at work, it saved my marriage because I didn't realize how I was speaking to people at home and my wife. So that was good. Now, where that was really helpful to have, and I purposely had work, you know, brought Ron and you all in at the same time I was working EOS because I didn't see how EOS could work as a, as a structure, a way like to reorganize the way we, we interacted and that kind of build the structure to make it effective. If people weren't willing to talk to one another, to trust one another, I, I just saw like you needed a foundation first. And to me, the foundation was going to be that people believed in one another. They trusted one another. They were open to being vulnerable and authentic and, and moving forward. And, and that's what I'm seeing happen. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. How you, how you triggered me was, it wasn't just a change for all of your employees to learn how to communicate. How, how I listen to you, like in order for them to be heard, there has to be someone on the other end of that hearing, right? Yeah. And that 
uh, like that's what I'm noticing is how your team changed as well to to create a space for them to be heard. So I'll just celebrate that with you to create yeah. that trust. Yeah, you know, I, and I would say, I think the biggest thing for me, there are people that have worked for us for a really long time. I love dearly. And, and the narrative is always, well, wrong person. You know, in, in EOS, there's a thing called right person, right seat, or wrong person, right seat. And there's three places that you would make that assessment. Are they, do they want it? Do they get it? And do they have the capability to do it? And I, I would hear people go straight to wrong person, wrong person, wrong person. And they didn't always go to the qualification part of it. Like, I think they want it. I'm pretty sure they have the capacity. They might not get it. And maybe we, that's where we have to come in. And, and that's where it, this Macklin with EOS can kind of work because it, it, it sort of can sit on top of one another and augment and help. Well, maybe, maybe just nobody believes it. <laughs> maybe they don't believe in themselves. Maybe there's a trust issue and they're scared to speak up because they don't want to get in trouble. And I started to see that when we were working with your team, start to melt away. And some of those people that were like, they're never going to change. They're never going to get better. And they basically were just getting marginalized into roles that I, and I was accepting it too. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I, I guess so. I don't really work with that person. All of a sudden they're leading the workshops, leading workshops. <laughs> I'm like, wow, how about that? <laughs> they're leaders. That's amazing. Yeah. Mike. So there's uh, great stories. Thank you for sharing those. And great for all the people who accomplished those things mm -hmm. and without any names, was there somebody who like they were in the wrong place? They needed to move on. You know, that actually I have a really, this is a great question. I believe that since the closures, you know, we had to lay a lot of people off and we had to put people kind of in, I don't, I don't know the exact legal term, but it's like, listen, we don't have anything for you now, but we'll bring it back as soon as we're reopened. I heard there was as many as 10 lawsuits that came out of that for us. And I don't know who the people were exactly, but when the conversation came up, what, what I, what I listened Ron, was like, you know, we kept trying to help them and they just, they just didn't belong here. Like they weren't satisfied. They weren't happy. We didn't have a place for them. And we kept trying to find something for them to do. And it reminded me of a story you had shared where you had a similar situation with someone that you had to kept trying to find something for them and they weren't had they later came on after they left and think that was the worst time of my life. Yep. I think that's what these 10 lawsuits really were was they should have just moved on. And we kept trying to create a situation for them that we felt good about, but they weren't satisfied in it. I want to, I want to, I don't want to step over that Mike because the story that, that I lived through, I had a story that I was really helping this person. Yeah. That's what it was. I mean, I, I was going to, you know, cause how do you get a job if you're unemployed, right? You, you, you left with unemployment so I could go find a job. Right. And wasn't a bad guy. He just, mm -hmm. we didn't have a job for him. And he stayed there for about eight weeks. And then we bumped into him like four months later. I woke up and I said, Hey, I ran an experiment with you to let you stay around and just be there. Right. Not doing anything. What was that like? And he just looked at me and goes, I really appreciate what you did, but that was the worst eight weeks of my life. Mm. I, I wasn't, I didn't belong. I didn't have anything to do. It was miserable. Yeah. I go, thank you. And I apologize, but thank you for letting me know. And I am hearing that from, from people now that we're trying to, like, they're capable. They've got knowledge, skills, but they're like, what, what's my role right now? Because everything's been turned upside down with these changes. And then the person will get a role but the person they're reporting to doesn't really feel comfortable with them in the role. And then there's a battle and there's not trust and, and on it. Um, there's still a lot to work out, but I'm not like, 
I'm listening to it differently. Like I'm a different observer of the situation thanks to our work together. And, and the U.S. has helped a lot too. And there's a lot of other backgrounds too. But I think like predominantly, I would give you the most credit, Ron. It's like I'm listening to it going, oh, okay, they're scared. Oh, okay. They, they don't believe in themselves. Oh, got it. No one's tossing the line. Oh, they only know how to throw rocks. They're putting up shields. And I, and I can sort of see it happening <laughs> and have conversations. And, you know, we have, we've talked about it before. We've got a great COO that has a lot of background in team building. You know, and he's he's able to see it from a different set of practices and backgrounds and experiences in the restaurant industry where I'm like, you ever have this sort of like, I don't know, is it dysfunction? I'm not sure. And he goes, Oh yeah. I worked in a I worked at a chain that they sent me to the regions. The whole region was like that. And I think, <laughs> you know, I got everybody on the same page. People will leave. They don't they don't come to And then when I left, it was a big happy team and everybody was functioning together. This is nothing. Okay. <laughs> it's like a big deal to me. <laughs> yeah, the Mike, the story that I hold in my head is that uh, each person like has a philosophy, but it's not like fixed and permanent. It's like I make up what is a good life for me, right? Mm. And it changes. Like, so what was a good life for me at 25 is not the same as 58. Mm. My philosophies change. And when you look at a culture, you gather up all the individual's philosophies and put them together, and that's your culture. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a summation of all of those things. And when you have somebody whose philosophies don't line up, mm. it's miserable for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, 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 they don't, they can't contribute. They're not, people don't get excited when they're there because their philosophy is different. Yeah. Not bad. It's different. It's different. If you're interested to learn how the Macklin Method could improve your business's culture and help people not just show up to work every day, but become active contributors and leave work feeling fulfilled, check out our workshops at MacklinConnection.com. Be sure to hit the subscribe or follow button in your podcast app. You won't want to miss the rest of this interview with Mike Angaro that we're going to be publishing next week and some of the other great guests we have coming up on the show.